having migrated to the United States, like I do to get told like, oh, I'm so lucky to be here. But no one ever frames it like, oh, they're lucky to have you. A lot of people who migrate were usually like in the top of our fields. And that's not emphasized enough. And it comes at the cost of us leaving our home countries. Hi, everyone. It's Joe. You're listening to Occupational Hazards, a series of candid conversations with some of the most inspiring people I know as they share their path to finding their calling and all the gritty realities of their jobs. Whether you want to demystify your dream job or are someone like me who enjoys getting a peek into other people's work lives, then this is the podcast for you. Our next guest is in the business of providing care while also raising thought-provoking questions with her writing, thereby giving voice to a community of healthcare and migrant workers. Irene Sarmiento is a writer, former college professor, and occupational therapist based in the U.S. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Occupational Therapy, cum laude, from the University of the Philippines Manila, or UPM, specifically their College of Allied Medical Professions, or CAMP. They gave her an award for outstanding research, and she also won the University of the Philippines Manila Foundation Award for Outstanding Artist. She's also received recognition for excellence in pediatric rehabilitation from the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at Philippine General Hospital. Irene topped the Philippine Occupational Therapy Board exam and has worked in various settings in the Philippines and in the States, including academia long-term acute care, skilled nursing facilities, home health, and several pediatric outpatient clinics. She also pursued further studies, obtaining her Master of Applied Cognition in Neuroscience from the University of Texas at Dallas. She is a self-described PhD dropout. On this episode, we talk about her experiences as an overseas healthcare worker battling the specter of Asian hate and sexual harassment at work, but also contemplating immigration, privilege, and the post-colonial slash imperialist structures that pervade healthcare systems and drive labor migration. We also touch on systemic issues for healthcare workers in the Philippines, i.e., how does one continue to provide care when no one is taking care of you? On the lighter side, We discuss her meditation and mindfulness practice, as well as her art. She tells us about her dinner with Neil Gaiman, which resulted in a collaboration for one of her books. Irene is the author of two illustrated children's books, Spinning and Thabon Girl, both published by Anvil, both about inclusion. Her writing has garnered awards from the Palanca Memorial Foundation. She won both grand prizes, Philippines Free Press, Philippine Graphics Slash Fiction Awards, and Stories to Change the World. Irene is also a contributor to Rappler, and we've included all the articles we discussed in this interview in the show notes. This episode is dedicated to those who welcome outsiders to cliques, crews, and countries with open arms and open minds. And now here's Irene to tell us all of her stories. Hi, Irene. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? So far, so good. Okay. Yeah. 
I've been at yeah I was hoping I wouldn't have to ask this question anymore like in season two of the pod (laughs) I've been asking all my guests because I thought it would be over by now but I've been asking all my guests kind of where they are in their pandemic arc and I don't know do you want to talk about that as far as you know being a healthcare worker on the front lines your occupational therapy or even as a writer like what the past few months have been like for you well the past few months have been like a bit of a roller coaster but right now just at this moment in the pandemic arc I'm trying to maintain a stable balanced internal environment while staying safe when I go out for work and such so it's really been about equilibrium for me at this point yeah that's so important I think I like that, that equilibrium and kind of managing your internal state, which I think is so important, especially if we can't control the external environment. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you wrote a couple of articles in Rappler that I actually wanted to talk about before we dived into the specifics of your profession, because I think along the way, it will reveal Mm -hmm. uh, something about your journey, right? Uh, You wrote something that was so topical in around May or you published an article talking about Asian hate and your experience of of that as a healthcare worker. Would you like to talk a little bit about the factors that led you to write about this and what the response to that piece was? Because I had a visceral response, but um, I'm just curious what your, no, I was so moved by it. That's actually one of the reasons I reached out to you because I mean, what a great story, but do you think you could tell us a little bit about it? I'll link to it in the show notes also. It's just, I think that encapsulates kind of something you've grappled with also along, I guess, the pandemic. Definitely. And yeah, I wouldn't have put it out there if I didn't think it was relevant or that it would reach people and maybe even help people. So, um, you know, the details of what happened are in the article, it's called Paper Tiger, Real Tiger. And it was about my experience of, I'm going to say perceived Asian hate, because if you read the article, it's like, a lot of what happened was indirect. And then there were some direct episodes that happened, but this was like before the term Asian hate was coined. So um, yeah, it was just basically about my experience as a healthcare worker and being out there at the time when there was so much negative sentiment directed towards Asian people. And um, I remember, you know, when I went through it, I kept asking myself, is this normal? Like what I'm feeling right now is that you know, um, are other people feeling this way? And I did an internet search, which is what I guess, you know, you do to, to see whether your experiences match up with, with the norm. And what I saw were mostly like secondhand reports, like, oh, people are scared right now. But no one really talked about that personal realm of what it's like to be going through it at that time. So I think... Um, that's kind of what drove me to write it. Of course, like part of me was like, should I really be putting this out there? You know, as because, you know, I feel like, I don't know if you can relate to this, but we're raised in such a way that we're told to be modest, you know? And sometimes I think bearing your emotions is part of what's considered modesty. So I think I grappled with that quite a bit. Like, should I be, be talking about this? Because this is my heart, you know? <laughs> and it's not really you know, like, yeah, will will it help? That was the other thing that I kept asking myself, or is it just something that people will read and think, oh, she's exaggerating, or, you know, this isn't real. Yeah, and 
And yeah, so I think overall, um, the reception was, I'm not going to say good, but it was like received like um, in such a way that, because like Rappler posts how people responded to it. So it made people sad. <laughs> like I think oh, that's what... Oh, the mood meter. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know how it does that. So I think in a way, I think like just evoking emotion is something that's important. I think during the pandemic, especially here, you have a lot of people kind of trying to see the bright side of things all the time. And I think sometimes, you know, there's a point in which that's not helpful. And I think if I contributed anything by writing that, it's that, you know, there are certain realities where you, you have to look at the impact, you know, of of these events. Like in, in that article, like I mentioned how the Georgia shooting, it did have an impact on on me at that time. Like I got scared. Note to listeners, we encourage everyone to read more about the shooting sprees that took place at three massage parlors slash spas in Atlanta, Georgia in March 2021. Eight people were killed in the attacks, six of whom were women of Asian descent. It made like going out in the world kind of terrifying. At that time, I was doing home health. I mean, one thing I wanted Um, to mention, because you, if you don't mind, no, because I... I think yeah. we, we talked about you. You mentioned the Georgia incident yeah. where trigger warning for people listening. But I, I mean, I think most yeah. people have seen the news, but um, a white gunman massacred some Asian. Uh, I think it was a massage spa. Yeah. OK, so a massage spa. He murdered them kind of to remove temptation or that's, you know, the reason he gave. But obviously it was a it was tagged as a hate crime, but also mm-hmm. I think brought up a lot of conversations about the way in which Asian women especially have been fetishized, sexualized, and thus devalued by media and society as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I think it was so powerful for me because you drew, drew that link between not just being a healthcare worker, but being like an Asian female interacting with uh, people you were supposed to give healthcare services to who actually um, sometimes gave or what could be perceived as unwanted sexual advances, you know, making comments on where you were from, uh, you know, the what stuck out to me the most was, I I don't want to spoil the article because it was the experience of reading (laughs) it was like a one-two punch. But I hope you don't mind. I'm going to mention one line that stood out. And when you told, you know, one old white man that you were from the Philippines and he was asking where you're from, he was like, oh, the Philippines is America's whorehouse. You know, so yeah, lines like that or hey, uh, or when you were helping the elderly people bathe and they were like, are you going to get into the shower with me? I mean, that's not only is it like harassment, but it's also I just can't imagine how mentally physically emotionally taxing that was for you on top of seeing these incidents in the headlines because you know at what point do these unwanted advances cross over into something that's actually life-threatening so I think you brought up I mean we're not going to resolve this on this pod right now but what what what, (laughs) no no, but I what I wanted to discuss was how you capture those feelings and that experience kind of so beautifully and I just thought it was amazing how you were able to use both of your, because you have kind of a, you, you have two roles, right? Or two professional roles, right? Uh, one is occupational therapist, one is writer, and you were able to like meld both of them and 
kind of create something that had such an emotional impact, at least for me. And I would imagine for a lot of the other readers, because they were able, you were right, they're able to click on Rappler's mood meter and you could see immediately how the article made them feel. So I think majority of the uh, readers of that piece clicked that it, it made them sad. So yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that, I, I thought it was really powerful and I'll link to it and listeners, you should read the piece if you can. And actually, one thing that came out in the piece I didn't know the numbers were this bad. I'd seen indications in the UK. We interviewed somebody on the pod last season who did uh, kind of a tribute. He was a theater actor who did a tribute to the nurses in the UK healthcare system who have been Mm -hmm. disproportionately affected by COVID. Though they're only like a small percent of the labor force, they represent the largest uh, percentage of COVID deaths. And you actually Mm -hmm. brought that stat out in your article. Uh, This is for the... I think America, right? So yes. for national, yeah. So I, I knew the UK numbers, but then I saw the American numbers in your piece because you're based in the States. And it said, according to National Nurses United, 31.5% of the nurses uh, that have died of COVID-19 or related complications uh, are Filipino or Filipino origin. But even though they're 31.5 or let's say 32% of the deaths, they actually only represent 4% of the registered nurses in the system. So it's, I guess there's this question of who does the system value? Who does the system deem kind of okay to be a casualty slash disposable in this, in this war uh, against COVID? Or why are predominantly people of a certain origin being affected by this, even though they're not majority of the, the workforce? So there's this whole, um, it, your piece, aside from bringing up questions about you know, the way women are depicted in society and the immigrant experience and all of this. Also, there were also questions about unseen cost um, that's not being reported in the media and like who is actually kind of being affected, right, by the pandemic. So I thought that was really interesting because you followed it up with another piece uh, about the Filipino, uh, you, you addressed another piece that you wrote in Rappler to the Filipino healthcare worker. Uh, Correct. Yeah. You want to talk about what <laughs> led to that? No, because I, I just want to talk about some of the recent works you've published before we dive into like how you got into you know writing and your occupational therapy. But uh, yeah, your most recent pieces were extremely moving. Well, thank you. Yes, I know it, it led to um, like an unplanned series of articles. But yeah, the next one I wrote was Your Call to Arms for the Filipino healthcare worker. And it, it emerged because I was reading a lot of analyses about why the Filipino nurses represented such an inordinately large number of COVID deaths. And some of these articles were pointing out like, oh, it's part of our psychology. You know, we don't say no, that kind of thing. Or Filipinos are also more likely to work in higher risk areas. So all those are like valid, I think. Like um, they're... But, you know, it's not right, of course, that that, that should happen or that did, that did happen. And so, um, so part of that was just talking about how, you know, we as healthcare workers should value ourselves. And, and I think it starts there, but it's just so, it's just so difficult to say that when you're raised in a psych, you know, in that psychology where you're supposed to put everyone ahead of you. And it goes back to... I think like just our culture, you know, where we're more communal. And I think even the way we're educated in the Philippines, because I, I went through like healthcare education and 
there is like this implicit martyrdom in it, you know, working long hours is considered a virtue or working off the clock. And I think that needs to be corrected. It's really, it's really something that leads to more harm than good. And that's why I wrote it. I wanted something like optimistic, but that spoke directly to to my colleagues that, you know, we we're doing something right here and we should recognize that for ourselves. And hopefully maybe other people will recognize that too. But in the meantime, I think we should just like, I think, try to draw some focus inward. Yeah. I remember when we talked offline about this, you summarized it as there's this question of, you know, we keep caring for people, but who's going to take care of us? And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about kind of the failings of the system in various countries. But uh, yeah, that's not the scope of today's discussion. But one thing that really struck me actually about that article, again, I'm trying not to spoil it, but I'm just going to cite some lines that stood out to me or themes that stood out to me. You mentioned this question of utang na loob or a debt of gratitude, Mm -hmm. right? Which is so prevalent in Filipino culture. And you you mentioned that when you went to school, because you went to UP, right? The state school Mm -hmm. or the state university, you know, premier state university in our country. You know, you had a professor who delved into the ethics of going abroad. Like, you know, uh, as scholars who are, you know, educated by, you know, the premier state university, you need to serve the country, all of this. What do you owe the taxpayers? And there were these parallel themes, not just as a healthcare worker, but as anybody who decides to go become an overseas worker, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we call them, I guess the, the more colloquial term would be like OFWs or overseas Filipino workers to those who are not familiar. Mm-hmm. But to anyone who becomes an OFW or a migrant worker, right? You know, you talked about sitting in that classroom as a university student, feeling like you were being guilted for choices that none of you had made yet. So there's this question about the ethics of going abroad. What do you owe the country as well as like, you know, you, you don't say this this way, but this was my take on it. It was like, at what point does utang na loob become kind of damaging to oneself if, you know, you're expected to, it's like the giving tree, right? You just give and give and give until there's, there's nothing yeah. left when maybe the system is not giving back or taking care of you. So, uh, or at what point do you put, the well-being of others ahead of your own to the point that that's maybe not sustainable, not a sustainable choice. So these are all things that I thought about. And you're right, you know, in the culture, even if you're not necessarily working a certain profession or if, even if you're not a migrant worker, I mean, just again, it goes back to like the role of women and, well, you know, what is expected of of. Yeah, it's, it goes back to what is kind of expected, I think, I think of women and especially in the society in which we were raised. And um, yeah, it, it just brought up all these questions. And I think that's the power of, of writing. Like I, I didn't have an answer to any of these questions, <laughs> but they were all running through my mind. And I, I said, my goodness, I want to talk about this, you know, with, with the writer or talk about like, what was her inspiration? So what was the response to that? Did you see that? Was it also sad in the mood meter when you published I that? Think, I think there were like, there was more inspiration to it because I saw it like reposted elsewhere, like for OFWs. So, um, so that was pretty encouraging. Yeah, I think 
oh, some of my friends, because like I, I don't get the numbers from Rappler. Like that's like all I see is the mood meter, and then all I see are like what how my friends react, like on social media. And a lot of them did respond positively to it. Yeah, because we all went through that. So that's like I think um I'm at the point in my career where I've been in the States long enough and I can ask myself, you know, what have I gained and what have I lost? And how can I how can I impart what I've learned to people who have similar plans as I've had, you know? So like I think that's where I am in terms of my my role as a writer and as a therapist. I know a lot of people like we have like in the Philippines, we just have like a massive population that goes abroad. I think it's 10%. I don't know about right now, but I, I know it's something like there's millions of like Filipinos working abroad. So so I've been thinking about like how, how to communicate certain things that I've learned to those who have similar plans, you know. Speaking of plans do you think you tell me about what did you want to be when you were little and did you ever plan that things would unfold this way as far as you know where you ended up staying and then also with the field that you entered can you talk about kind of how you got into it and was this something that you had envisioned when you were younger so do I actually have an article about that coming out maybe in a week or so Ah. and yeah, initially I had wanted, I've always wanted to be a writer. So there's that. So um, I've been joining writing competitions since I was seven. And my first short story, it won this contest when I was like a little kid. And I got published in this parenting magazine. So that was really encouraging to me. And I think that really kind of framed my life like, oh, this is what you should be. And the thing is, like, I was also really interested in science, particularly um, nature. So I really liked insects. Like, I used to be a wannabe entomologist. And the, the reason I didn't go into that, yeah, I wrote an article about it. It's called Locusts. And then there. So um, anyway, so my mom, she was always, she was always encouraging me to go abroad. So as for OT, I learned about it through my mom before going to college, and she suggested a profession that would allow me to migrate eventually so I could have more opportunities for myself. At that time, like, I'd never heard of OT, so I observed, like, um, a family friend at a pediatric clinic somewhere south of Metro Manila, and when I applied for the OT program at the University of the Philippines, I was thinking that if I didn't like it, I could always transfer out, but once I was in, I found the environment and the professors so supportive and nurturing that I decided I was a good fit for it. So I also had the kindest classmates who always wanted to do right by everyone. And I think that really kept me going. Like, that's the thing about our healthcare culture, too. I think a lot of people there really have not just good hearts, but great hearts. And looking back at it, if anything, it made me like a a better writer being around such good people. And just learning about, like, you learn about humanity in a different way when you're directly helping them, I think. So, yeah, that's what got me into the OT route. But where did the Master of Science in Applied Cognition and Neurosciences come in? Like, at what point did Um, you decide to do that? So, right after I graduated from OT, I did really well in school. So, um, and I think. 
what happened there was, like I said, I was so inspired by my professors. I wanted to be like one of them. So that's what I did. Like after graduating, like I taught at the university for a while. And then while I was there, I was learning a lot about how the brain affects rehabilitation outcomes. And so, so um, I decided to take neuroscience over at the University of Texas in Dallas because I saw that their research repertoire was kind of a good match for my interests. And I'd always thought that if I were to take further studies, they would be like focused on the brain and I would just make whatever I learned fit whatever I, I was doing. So I still continued my clinical work, even though like I think in that program, when I was enrolled at UT Dallas, I was the only occupational therapist. Most of them were, were going into different like specialties. Yeah. So for me, it was really more of like, I was interested in it. That's why I wanted to, to study it. Nice. So yeah. Did it actually impact your work? Um, which we actually, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe before we talk about how it impacted your work, because I'm trying to wrap my head around kind of everything you just said. And I think one place to start might be, how would you describe to somebody, because you're great with words, obviously, how would you describe to somebody what an occupational therapist does if they've never encountered one? You know, because I think yeah. people are familiar maybe with physical therapy, but unless they have a loved one or they themselves have required the services of an occupational therapist, I'm not sure that most people know what it is. Okay, so first I'll give you the textbook definition of occupational therapy. So it's an area of health in healthcare in which the goal is to help people across the lifespan engage in everyday activities that are meaningful to them. As an occupational therapist, I use different interventions like therapeutic activities, like self-care, sometimes, you know, just helping someone prepare a meal, that's already intervention. Exercises and activity and environmental adaptations. These are just to name a few. As an OT, I've worked with people at different developmental stages and with various abilities and difficulties that have included like age-related illnesses, vehicular injuries, neurological disorders, and even prematurity because now I work with babies and kiddos. My goal is essentially the same, but it's catered to each individual. So I help people achieve their highest level of independence in order to engage in occupations that are important to them. So for example, right now I'm working with a lot of infants. So sometimes it can be as basic as this baby should be sitting up by now. And in that case, I do a lot of positioning. I do a lot of play. Yeah. It, and it looks like, you know, if you were to watch me doing therapy with a, a child, it looks like I'm just playing with them. But really what I'm doing is like I'm facilitating fine motor skills, visual perceptual skills, all these like um, things that the brain and body should be doing so that this kiddo can participate in like feeding or, or play. So in my case, I refer to occupation in a broad sense to include all these like a large scope, like play, school, work, activities of daily living, things like dressing, grooming, feeding. So it's a, it's a very interesting profession, I think. And one that I want to say is underrated, but of course I'm biased. You know, I love occupational therapy. I think, I think it's great. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Would physical therapy fall under the umbrella or are they related? We're related in terms of we're both rehabilitation professions and we do work together sometimes. 
but we are different professions. So our goals are, our goals are different. So like with me, like as an occupational therapist, my goal is more of the engagement in a meaningful activity. Let's say for someone, if I were to work with an individual who's had a stroke and this person like has left-sided weakness. So the physical therapist would most likely target things like getting that person stronger and getting that person to walk again. And whereas for me, I would be working for this individual so that he or she could could get dressed or, you know. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah, you got it. Like yes, yes, I understand. Yeah. yeah. My exposure to it has been mostly for the elderly, right? Because I have people yeah. in my family who have to go through various types of therapy. But I, I was thinking about the reasons and w- why children would uh, require this. Is it preventive or corrective intervention? It can be both. Like, let's say for kids with developmental delay, you know, you are, in a sense, preventing further delay, even though kids develop at different rates and in different areas. So, you know, sometimes if you were to look at the brain, you know, and so much brain power goes to using our hands. And so sometimes let's say a kid with a fine motor deficit, sometimes you'd think, oh, that's not important. This kid will eventually catch up. But, you know, these things can affect later skills like handwriting or even, you know, work really further down the line. So So it can be both. Yeah. And it can be corrective in a sense that if someone is exhibiting behaviors that are just not helpful, we can definitely work on that, like in a therapeutic sense. So it's a very broad profession and it's very holistic. The holidays are coming up and you're probably looking for the perfect gift. Well, I want to talk about one of my favorite small businesses in Manila. Japan opened its doors in 1992 and was one of the first Japanese-style bakeries in the Philippines. To this day, they make their breads the same way they did almost 30 years ago, freshly baked from scratch every day, chemical and preservative-free. Manila listeners can find Japan in Glorieta 4, Estancia at Capital Commons, or their commissary shop at 220 Pilar Street in Mandaluyong. You can also look online at japan.com.ph. Occupational Hazards listeners can get a 10% discount on orders through their website with the code JAPANJO. That's J-I-P-A-N-J-O. They accept all payment types and they have an in-house delivery service. You can choose to pick up your orders at any of their branches. Find out more at japan underscore ph on Instagram or on Facebook via facebook.com slash japan cafe tip aside from their famous bread check out their cafe menu sushi platters bento boxes and their holiday catalog we're talking rum cake fruit cake pound cake cookies holiday baskets and my personal favorite their diy gingerbread houses the perfect activity for the little ones in your life And now back to our episode with Irene, who also works with little ones, or as she calls them, kiddos. Yeah, so going back to the original question, which was how did the master's degree in applied cognition and neuroscience 
help what you're doing. I under I see the link, but I guess another a follow up to that is also, do you think it's valued? Like how many people in your profession actually go on and take a degree like that? And I guess is it something that's appreciated in the workplace and by the clients or or I don't know by the system itself? I would say, I it was more of a personal goal. I think so. I mean, people are definitely like when I've gone on interviews, they've expressed being impressed by like, oh, you've studied neuroscience. That's so great. That's so interesting. But um, in terms of actually being hired as an occupational therapist, what people really look at, you know, my license and my references, but um, in terms of like, I think it would help more if I were to work in academe, like, um, it helps me personally because I think the neuroscience degree really helped me develop critical reading skills for very specific scientific articles. So yeah. there's, so it's really, that was more of a personal achievement for me. And um, I could have studied, maybe done further studies in occupational therapy, but I wanted something I wanted to study something with where I could have generalizable skills. So the neuroscience degree really helped with that because it's re- it was a very research-oriented program. And it taught me a lot in terms of how to, I'm not going to say how to think, but more of how to ask questions when you're looking at research. That's so, so important. Can I just say, <laughs> I think not just yeah. for your profession, but everybody, especially now that everyone has suddenly become like a healthcare expert, oh, yeah. <laughs> in addition to a public policy expert. Uh, yes, I think that is a skill that all of us could benefit from. So more power mm-hmm. to you for trying to develop it. Uh, you know, critical thinking, critical reading, uh, being able to distinguish kind of, because uh, there's scholarly articles and there are scholarly articles. <laughs> And it's oh, not, yes. not enough for someone, you know, with a degree to publish something and suddenly it becomes gospel truth with a separate topic. <laughs> um, so you talked a bit about teaching earlier. Can you talk more about mm-hmm. what, uh, what subject did you teach or what courses did you teach? And then how does that also affect your work now? Because you're actually kind of teaching your patients how to do things, right? Of course, yes. So in the sense, I'm always teaching back when I was with the University of the Philippines, I taught a lot of occupational therapy majors. I taught some units in anatomy. The way they do it there is when you're newer faculty, you get like a higher teaching load. So that's so that the the more senior faculty can focus on more like administrative roles and research roles. So I got a lot of that experience. Um, And it would change like once in a while. Like I think I, I was there maybe five years. So my subjects would, like, I would try to keep the same, same units. Let's say if it were, was like OT 101, I'd, I'd want to just teach whatever unit that is in, or whatever, like specific topic, like history of occupational therapy, that kind of thing. But um, it wouldn't always work out that way. So I think what that experience gave me, I want to say it helped me build some confidence and it definitely, like, I was also assigned some clinical supervision work. And that also involved a lot of, like, teaching families and then teaching my students how to teach families. 
so yeah a lot of that stuff okay it's like it all yeah. came together uh because even the writing the, yeah even the writing I feel is very instructive in a way <laughs> like all these hey. the the way you write it actually is similar to how some professors will Socratically mold their students you know to consider <laughs> broader questions so I think there's this underlying theme of also kind of sharing knowledge or imparting you know point of view to mold the way we think that kind of underpins all your work so hats off to you what would you say is your favorite part about what you do you can talk about writing or the occupational therapy or both okay I'm going to talk about both I like how my work allows me to be creative so as an occupational therapist and a writer, I love individual narratives as they relate to the bigger picture. And as an OT, part of my job is considering each client's story. So we are very holistic in our approach, meaning we also consider how the person's environment contributes to the performance or non-performance of a certain activity. And I love seeing my clients improve and actually achieve their goals, even if it's something as simple as being able to take a shower as independently as possible. Yeah. That's a really nice thematically. Uh, what about what would be the least, your least favorite part of what you do? Well, I talk about this in one of my articles, but there are always going to be patients who can be rude or lash out because I'm seeing them at their moments of weakness. And like I said, I wrote an article for Rappler about how I encountered some sexual comments from patients on the job. I wouldn't necessarily consider that as part of the job, though. And it was definitely unfortunate to have happened. Currently, I'm working with children in their homes, and it makes me feel like I'm part of the community that I'm inhabiting to be able to go and contribute to the health of its residents. I don't think it's particularly glamorous to drive from house to house in my scrubs and work with the kiddos and write notes at the end of the day. So this isn't for everyone. It's not really, like it's for me, but for some people, like that's that's not appealing at all, <laughs> I could imagine. Yeah, you know, the I mean, the theme of this pod, right, is occupational hazards. So if you were to, I guess, scare somebody who maybe wasn't sure if this was the path they wanted to pursue, So I'm sure there are many that are looking at their options also, as you once did. I guess there's there's many ways to engage in the field in which you do. I mean, it doesn't have to be OT. But uh, as far as it relates to OT, you know, you said, how would you fill in this blank? Don't take this job if you blank. Um, I'd say don't be an occupational therapist if you don't think you can deal with people in their most vulnerable states like compassion, fatigue, and burnout. These are all things to watch out for. And so it's important to be able to care for yourself as well, like we were talking about earlier. And as this cliche goes, you can't pour from an empty cup. On being a writer, if being alone with your thoughts is torture to you, this may not be your vocation. Yeah. Speaking of kind of how you've had to reassess also or think about your work, How has the pandemic, I guess, affected your plans for the future or even how you think about, you know, your day-to-day? Well, I didn't go back to working as a field OT until later in the pandemic. The whole telehealth thing wasn't really for me. I still do some telehealth visits, but for most of the lockdown, 
like I was focused on my writing and then it was kind of during the later part of the pandemic arc when they started you know there were clearer guidelines about what we could and couldn't do that's when I, I really got back into to being like a field clinician okay and at this point like because the, the pandemic's still happening like we have the delta variant so I'm still I'm still out there most Companies have like their healthcare workers take extra precautions. Of course, we're still wearing masks. We're still sanitizing stuff like like we should, <laughs> and and just being very careful. Yeah, you know, if you could go back in time, this question almost feels indulgent, but I mean, you know, <laughs> if you could go back in time, you know, would you do anything differently? And I guess in parallel, would you give advice to somebody or to your younger self or somebody who was in your shoes at that time? I definitely, I've thought about this. I would have made sitting meditation part of a daily routine back when I was in my 20s. I think I would have dealt with drama and perceived life crises with much more grace had I done so. And on the writing side of my career, I think I should have done more to promote my books while I was still in the Philippines as these were written to benefit Filipino children. And I would have taken initiative to do more school visits and readings, though my publisher, which is Anvil, they did arrange some of those for me. I got published pretty young. And to be honest, I didn't really have imposter syndrome. I knew I worked really hard and I knew I'd been working like pretty much since I was a child on becoming a good writer. And honestly, what I felt back then was the need to exercise some obligatory humility. And now that I think back to it, it was a cultural trait, but it wasn't really helpful <laughs> at that time. And, and then it became like an individual trait. Like I just felt like, oh, I can't promote myself. It's not not expected you know that kind of thing but yeah. now that I think of it, yeah I, I should have I should have really pushed mm. and and I'm trying to be better at that like I link my books to my articles so that if people like the article they can check out my children's books and yeah nice I want to talk about two things actually uh, or I want to react to two things you said one was you talked about making meditation a part of your regular routine to kind of cope with all the changes and stress in the world. Maybe because you're in the healthcare field and the question of public health, self-care, all of these things have been become very topical during the pandemic. But as far mm -hmm. as your holistic health practices, do you think you could share, like, what, what do you do to keep yourself healthy? Something we can learn from, or just, I don't know. I'm just curious, like as somebody who works in the field, like how does somebody responsible for other people's health, take care of their own health. I try to do yoga every day. <laughs> and that's my norm. My, my natural state is I'm a really clumsy person. Like I'm very awkward. And I think just doing yoga makes me aware of my body, my breathing, and just my state of health. And so that's been a really important part of my myself at this point. Because if you do it, like, like I've been doing Ashtanga yoga for about 12 years. And it went from being like part of my routine to just like, it's almost like it's part of my identity now, <laughs> you know, like who does this? And without this, 
I don't know whether I'd be the same person. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that if I took it out of my life, it would affect my personality even, you know. <laughs> what type of meditation do you do? I do um, a sitting, kind of a Zen hybrid meditation. So yeah, it's not really, I can't call it Zen per se, because I'm kind of, sometimes I'm spacing out. But um, yeah, I try to just try to follow like the Zen principles, but I can't really claim that it's Zen if I'm explaining myself clearly. Yeah, which, uh, which principles would those be if people are not familiar with Zen? principles okay so zen is more of um awareness of breathing so what was taught to me by my zen school back then was um we go back to a mantra which is mu and that basically means nothing so um while i'm sitting there focusing on my breathing i try to just clear my mind and just let whatever thoughts pass and just anchor myself back to that mantra and um it's also very posture focused. So when I sit in meditation, like it's on the floor and with my back straight, if that gives you a clearer picture. Yeah. So I, yeah. I meditate, but I do it lying down because I can't necessarily sit still. <laughs> no, I do the, the Shavasana or corpse pose where you're just like lying on the floor. And sometimes I, I drift off, but that's the pose that works for me. But I, I'm curious now to try the back straight, you know, sitting pose that you just discussed uh do you it's definitely more challenging yeah <laughs> do you teach your whether the children or the elderly patients that you work with do you also is meditation something you could teach them i don't know if that's part of occupational therapy because it's not really teaching them to do something but it's a i guess it's a good skill to have <laughs> um i try to incorporate certain principles like breathing like coordinating breathing and movement so that in a mm. sense Yes, but um, since these are, like when I do occupational therapy interventions, these have to be like documented in such a way that their insurance will accept it. So I have to be just very careful about how I word uh. interventions. <laughs> so, so yeah, so like let's say instead of yoga, sometimes I'll say like yoga-inspired mindful stretching, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah so yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's a Western paradigm, but I've actually, I mean, in India where like yoga originated, right? They're mm -hmm. actually having COVID patients do yoga as part of their routine. It's, there's no, you, they don't have to obfuscate like, so that the system will pay for it. Like the hospitals are actually making the patients do it. So it's kind of interesting to see uh, what the insurance system in the West will or will not accept, right? Yeah. Yoga as an interview, it's accepted as a, like a therapeutic exercise, that kind of thing. But um, you still have to have an outcome that relates to, to why someone necessitated like therapy. So, you know, like they, what I'm trying to say is that, like, let's say if I have a patient whose goal is going back to school, I have to, to justify like why I used yoga to get this person to go back to school, if, yeah. if I'm being clear. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's that, there's like a whole lot of, yeah, like, I, I mean, I can see why we've, we've still got some ways to go here. Yeah. Well, this is also because, well, I'm, I'm, I have fully <laughs> drunk, drunk the Kool-Aid, right? So 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen I, I've seen all the videos where someone went from like not being able to walk and like was doing yoga every day and suddenly was running, you know, from being told they would like <laughs> yeah. never walk again. So to me, it's like kind of very intuitive that this is something. It's just like walking or stretching that <laughs> kind of is a, would be beneficial to be part of people's uh, daily lives. But anyway, I was just curious about like how the healthcare system processes that because even here in the Philippines, I don't know if you've heard, but I know some kind of alternative wellness practitioners and even some of our largest hospitals, like this, you know, St. Luke's and whatever, are actually approaching them to mm-hmm. integrate that into their treatment program, which. Is I mean, it's a whole other discussion, but at least I think minds are more open now that there's, again, focus on holistic health and things that you can do to things that are more preventive than corrective, right? We don't have to medicate everything. Like There, there are ways we can work with um, the tools we have in our, our bodies and minds to uh, achieve our health outcomes. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so that's one thing, one part of it. I was curious about your health practice. The other thing that you mentioned that I was uh, really interested in, because you you are a children's book author. I mean, you write articles, but you, you've received a lot of awards, like Palanga Awards. You've received awards from the Philippine Free Press or Graphic and Fiction Awards. So one of the books that got you a lot of attention was your children's book called Tabon Girl, which is available on Shopee and Lazada, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. This is through Anvil's page or your your, your author page? Um, this is through, Anvil has links to the ebook. Okay. And yeah, and but I think, I don't think I saw it through Anvil. Like it's through like the Anvil shop in Lazada. Okay. Or in okay. that kind of yeah. Okay. But at least yeah, I just wanted to make sure it's like you're just affiliated with the creator so that um people can oh, support yeah, <laughs> can support the creator. Okay, great. So Tabun, mm-hmm. yeah, Tabun Girl, do you want to tell us more about it? Because I, I remember seeing uh news about the launch several years ago. I wasn't able to go, but I read the description. I was like, this is a fantastic premise and I think every child should have a copy of this can you tell us a bit more about kind of the, the genesis of the book and what it's about okay so Tabun Girl it's about a little girl who goes on these garden excavations because she wants to be an archaeologist but then her mother doesn't want her getting her dress dirty for listeners not from the Philippines the word Tabun refers to the Tabun caves where some of the oldest human remains were discovered in the country and as we mentioned, you can buy Tabun Girl as an ebook through most of the big sellers, Amazon, Kobo, iBooks, Nook, etc. Or if you're in the country, in, in the Philippines, you can get it through Shopee or Lazada. And all my royalties will go to support the efforts of AHA Learning Center, which provides free tutoring to underprivileged Filipino children. And Joe, you can probably say more about AHA. Am I saying it correctly? Yes. It's AHA. Yes. Yeah. We've featured them as our kind of uh, non-profit that we love on another episode. But yeah, they're, mm-hmm. they're doing fantastic work. So I didn't know that, actually, that all the royalties would go to AHA Learning Center. We'll link to them in the show notes yes, again also. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I don't know all these themes that you keep bringing up about like what is expected of especially young girls in our society. You know, like keep your head down, you know, be modest. And there is also the thing about like, oh, your dress will get dirty because this girl wants to be an archaeologist no mm-hmm. right so like yes. this, this idea of like oh your dress might get dirty it just reminds me of some of the things a lot of us I think heard when we were growing up not so much for, at least me it wasn't my immediate family luckily I was lucky but 
like family friends who are well-meaning you know when they see you like running running around playing outdoors to be like oh but you know you don't climb trees or don't like run through the fields because like you might um, scrape your knee or like your legs will get scarred or whatever and then you can't like join beauty pageants or whatever there's I know whether or not the child I mean whether or not the child wants to join pageants or is fit to join pageants there's this just this, it's, it's just interesting um the messages that we get from a very young age about like what we're supposed to aspire to do and to be so or like oh sai like sayang or it's shame um for those who don't speak philippine like oh sayang you know your your beautiful skin or something will get like scratched so it, it, it's funny yeah whereas you know people want might want to make more like functional lifestyle choices for themselves like perhaps it's necessary to like go through nature, you know, to explore, but also to maybe pursue something they might want to study in the future. So I, I like that you wrote this Tabun Girl and talk that touches a bit on defying some of the norms and expectations, as well as encouraging, you know, young girls to go into that field or show them what's possible um, if they have an inclination for like natural science. So I like that. Yeah, it was super fun to, um, I mean, this was published in 2012, but when we did the launch, some of the members of the UP College of Archaeology, they came out and they did sandbox archaeology with the kids. So it was a really nice experience for them. And um, I have this funny story about, like I told you, I was, I did get a few opportunities to promote the book, like in schools. So I went to this all-girls school to promote it. Well, it actually hadn't come out yet. So it was more of Going back, like I wrote another book called Spinning, and it was about a boy with autism. And I actually used this book to raise some raise funds for the Autism Society of the Philippines. So it did it did all right. It didn't do as well as um, Tabin Girl, but um, I know like some libraries picked it up because it had a Filipino and um, it wasn't a bilingual book. It had like a Filipino version and an English version and. Uh, some libraries picked up the the Filipino version. So that was kind of good. Like it it had like a good publication life, I guess. So anyway, going back, I was promoting the book at this like all girls school, but it hadn't come out yet. Tabon Girl hadn't come out yet. So um, I just had like some of the preliminary illustrations, just talking to them about my new project. And when I flashed one of the illustrations on the screen, like the girl said, oh, it's Tabon Girl. And I thought I was going crazy because like the book hadn't been published. And then it turned out that their teacher had um, pulled the story from the Palanca Awards website and used it just as um, like a reading comprehension exercise for those kids. Oh, so, so nice. And the story, it was just such a weird experience. I thought like I was going crazy at first. I was like, how can we know about this story? It's not even out yet. And then the teacher explained like, oh, it's because like I found it on the website. And yeah. And we were learning about lands and people and this was perfect. So yeah, so that was a pretty encouraging moment, I think, in my early writing life. Yeah, that's so nice. Yeah. I hope they integrate it into the curriculum. That would be nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You actually yeah. wrote a bit about this also. You have another article in Rappler uh, about uh-huh. how, because you write children's books, right? And then this theme mm-hmm. of ex- exploration and the outdoors. But you wrote an article about the parallel lives of like children in quote unquote, the first world countries, or let's say the global north, and then children in developing countries that have been ravaged by the coronavirus and have to 
now spend most of their time indoors. So just the freedom and the different learning experiences of the students, you know, in lockdown versus being able to go to class face to face or even, you know, take walks outdoors in the park and, and whatnot. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting because you're you obviously like you work a lot with children also now, aside from writing for them. Mm-hmm. So you've probably had a long time to think about how this experience is affecting their development also. Yes. <laughs> so the title of that article is called First World Envy. And it's about, yeah, it is a kind of a parallel between like how kids here in the global north are developing, like they get to go out now, they get to see one another. And then like how back home, our kids are still indoors. And that's really heartbreaking to me, like thinking of all these, yeah, like how it's affecting them and and how this is becoming normal. And, and that to me is, is scary. I don't really have the answer like there, how to, how to alleviate that, you know? Like, I don't know if you it's have- heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. So I'm acquainted with people in the community and I think they're doing a tremendous job coping with all the changes that have mm-hmm. come their way. Edu- the, the nature of education has really shifted, but I think there's a lot of, people that uh, are not being addressed by the system so the people that had to say drop out enrollment i think now is only at like 10 percent of what it was pre-pandemic pre-pandemic along some in in some grade levels i don't know if that's across the the board i'll I'll have to look up the stat and there are Uh talks about people who are looking like further down the line are talking about like this lost generation uh, at least within a certain socioeconomic bracket you know um who those who can't afford to go online can't afford to uh, yeah, to, to don't have laptops and tablets and, and all of this stuff. Note to listeners, I stand corrected. It's not that there are only 10% of students remaining in the system. It's that at least 10% have dropped out of the system. So K through 12 enrollment in both public and private schools was roughly 10% less for school year 2020 to 2021 compared to the previous school year 2019 to 2020. Now, there are some Department of Education estimates that place the dropout rate at 15 to 20% as of February 2021. This does not include students who enrolled but are not actively attending classes at that time. Anyway, at the time this episode was released, there has been some progress. There are some face to face pilots being rolled out in classrooms nationwide here in the Philippines but the majority of students are still attending classes online. Now, it remains to be seen the actual effect that pandemic uncertainties will have had on enrollment for school year 2021 to 2022. We'll probably have to wait next year for the numbers to be released. We put a few links in our show notes if you want to read more about the issue. When you talk about the parallels of first world versus Um, you know, in the Philippines, one thing that came to mind was also that in the Philippines itself, seeing just the divide, there is like a first world Philippines or, you know, private school students or students who have the access to high speed internet and gadgets and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, like facilities or, you know, you know, they have their own room where they can uh, learn or, you know, do a staycation and, you know, some so-and-so's like summer home where they can play outdoors and then attend online classes. That's a whole, Mm -hmm. that's like first world within like the country, right? And then there's the experience of like the 99% 
that are you know just struggling to buy load and get internet signal and, and all of that and um I mean, there are, there are some questions. So, like, I'm not not to open a huge can of worms, but there's a, there are whole conversations about whether this makes education more inclusive, right? Like, whether you know, rather than maybe, especially at the higher levels, like, oh, instead of um, requiring you to go to college in person, you know, maybe this would benefit somebody who has to work a part time job, and then they can do like online classes and whatnot. But the stories I'm seeing are like much earlier in the process, where uh, mm-hmm. people are dropping out like before they've even you know hit primary school. <laughs> Or, or whatnot, simply because the, the resources or their communities don't have the resources to send them to school anymore. So, yeah, it's probably a whole other conversation. But um, yeah, your, your article sparked a, a lot for me. And, and I think it's wonderful that even though you're not based in the Philippines, the proceeds from your work are going to causes that you support in the Philippines. So, um, you know, we talk about how your work is providing care to people and you're doing it in so many different ways. And I think that's so admirable and uh, not talked about enough. <laughs> there, there's so many, I, I, I was trying to highlight, you know, the purpose of the pod was really to highlight people that are actually making a difference in their own field, in their own way, and, and trying to do good in their own spheres of influence because the news is not so encouraging. So, I, you know, rather no. than, you know, tune into this, like <laughs> the airwaves of despair, I, I thought I would like to highlight some voices <laughs> like yours that are actually you know, bringing some, some hope into corners where there's, yeah, where there may not be. So thank you for what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you for what you're doing as well, because you're amplifying these voices that otherwise wouldn't necessarily get heard. And yeah, like, I think just shedding light on, on these jobs that people don't necessarily know about. Yeah. How can people get involved with what you're doing or follow your, your work? Yeah, uh, you can check out my book, Tabon Girl. <laughs> That's uh, on the Anvil web- website. And of course, I have works in, in Rappler that you could check out as well. That I would appreciate that. And who knows, it might resonate with you. And my goal really, like when I write these things, isn't so I can talk about myself. It's so that maybe you can learn something about yourself as a reader. You know, that I feel like my experience as a healthcare worker, as an immigrant, as a former overseas Filipino worker, it resonates with a lot of people, but we don't have much written about it. And so I'm kind of trying to add to that narrative. Like it's, I mean, I I know, because I've checked too, it's like, well, what are the stories that are out there? They're similar to mine. And because I know statistically, like we've got the numbers, but then somehow we don't have the storylines. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I yeah. That's why it's so important what you're doing, because you're actually able to not just experience things, but write about these experiences in such a powerful and moving and enlightening way. But I think, you know, whether or not, even if somebody's like not from the Philippines, but at least to be able to see someone who's different um, and empathize with them and understand that experience would go a long way, I think, toward resolving some of the conflicts we have in our world. Just being able to take a walk in somebody else's shoes, right? And understand their experiences. Yeah, I agree. And um, so I think I'm trying, like I'm definitely trying to, to lend like a different perspective. I know it's my own, but, um, but I, like I said, I think I represent 
I represent a huge number of people who don't get their stories told and and I'm trying to do a good job at it. So yeah, I'm still still working on that. Like definitely like moving to the States, I realized my powers for consumption have gotten way greater, whether I like it or not. Like it's just the way things are. And I mean, I've been thinking about that like during the pandemic and even before, like what it means to be a consumer and what it means to be a creator. And I think that our our ideas are part of that. We talk a lot about products and how to responsibly buy or create products that are sustainable, but we don't really talk about what ideas to put out there and what ideas to yeah. consume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think so that's what's important to me right now. There's like the day-to-day part of me that that goes out and and gets involved in the community and works with children. But then, you know, there's a part of me, like I think the bigger part of me that's still back home, like back in, in the Philippines and that believes I can make a bigger difference this way. You know, like, um, like what you're doing with this, oh. trying to put out ideas. I think that's special. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been trying yeah. to be mindful also about the ideas I consume and which the kind of airwaves I tune into. So it's more a mental, it's more like a self-preservation instinct than, than anything else. But um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what else you'll create. Speaking of creators, I, I was going to ask this earlier, but how did you start collaborating with Manix Abrera, who's a, an oh. amazing cartoonist? <laughs> yeah. So we both won this competition that was um, sponsored by Neil Gaiman, the Philippine Graphic Fiction Awards. So I won second place for fiction, and I think he won first place for the graphic work. Okay. So yeah, so we we met there, and we became friends. And then, yeah, I asked if he would illustrate a children's book, and he read the story first, and he said he liked it. So that got me to collaborate with him. It's pretty straightforward. Nice. So but, Neil Gaiman brought yeah. you guys together. <laughs> no, how wild, right? Did you get this? <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, what were you going to ask? I was going to ask if you got to meet um, Mr. Gaiman when you won the award. What was that like? So that was one of the prizes that you got to have dinner with him. And the way it worked was they had us kind of on these round tables and then he would just kind of percourse, go around sitting with the winners. And I think we had a raffle too. I'm not sure. So what happened there was like I won... There were like two parts, like you had like a popular vote and then you had like a, like the regular competition. Like I won the popular vote, if that <laughs> makes some, any difference, but. People's actually, choice. Know, You're the people's champ. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, you won, you won, right? So you won the award. Yeah, like I also, I won like second place and then first place for popular choice. Um, and I forgot like what that entailed, but I know it's like either way you would have had, I would have had been one of those who had dinner with Neil Gaiman and that was pretty cool like he he went around table to table very very gracious gentleman such a cool guy so like he he went to the dinner super late because he was out there signing every autograph like I think like the signing was only supposed to be until 6 p.m and they extended it until like 10 or something he really wanted to get to every fan and then some of the wait staff at the restaurant they brought their books 
and then he still signed them and he was like oh yeah this is really you know he he like took the time to kind of like chit chat a little very good to his fans so I love that he had fans yeah. everywhere That's it's amazing. so insane yeah yeah he indulged me too like I don't have kids but um I bought like one of his books I asked him to like dedicate it to my few, my daughter and then he did <laughs> so that was pretty cool yeah That's so amazing what a what a story yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I I look forward to seeing what else you will put out into the world because I think your writing has thus far kind of allowed you to have all these experiences but I don't know I'm just fascinated by how you you're taking from different facets of your life and what you're experiencing I guess that's what writers do and then like processing it and then putting it all together in a way that makes people think like I said earlier what I find nice about that experience is also how he brought you guys together so I'm a fan of Manix's work um I'll, yeah I'll link to Tabun Girl so people can kind of see some of the illustrations in the show notes but it, it's great that you know someone like that like a creative who's known kind of worldwide was able to actually uplift other creatives also in other countries so and then actually oh, yeah spark collaboration so but i think that's this is something you're doing as well so you're kind of paying forward the kindness that mr gaiman <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah um paid to you guys so that's super cool um yeah i guess moving on um speaking of fun stuff this is normally the part of the interview where we talk about the lightning round or where we do the lightning mm-hmm. round it's just like a quick you know first word or, or phrase that comes to mind yeah like don't think about it too much but uh it is it's more so that we can like get to know a different side of you but uh what inspires you I mean people who are uplifting patient and kind it's just so much easier to be a downer so when I meet people who are just they just got like great energy like I, I do feel inspired by them and I'm always like oh I should be more like this person oh nice What about a work of art that you wish you'd created? I'd say these are more artistic elements. Like um I want to be able to create characters like those in Jonathan Franzen's novels. They're sympathetic yet they're so aggravating. Like <laughs> yeah. So and also um Haruki Murakami's short stories uh-huh. even though what we get are translations, they still have these like universal elements of the human condition that I also wish to capture. So I think for me exemplars are like his stories Barn Burning and Tony Takipani. Yeah, those are like more, even when I read them translated in a different like I read them in Spanish and they still work. <laughs> they they're still very they're still very moving at least right. to me. Do you write and yeah. cuz you you mentioned you you you've written books that came on Filipino and in Tagalog. Did you did you write the Tagalog version? Or the Filipino. Oh, no. oh okay. <laughs> no. Because, I was gonna ask you. I was gonna ask you if you'd also written like in Spanish uh, since since you'd read Spanish work. I can read and converse, maybe at an intermediate level, but um, I I wouldn't call myself like I'd say I'm semi fluent in a functional sense. Okay. But my Tagalog, it's it's really poor. Like it's cringe. So let's not get into that. Yeah. Okay. What would you say is your proudest yeah. achievement? It's not so much a single achievement, but I'm proud of how I'm unafraid to put my voice out there, even though it's not a particularly loud voice. I think I've shown a balanced degree of resilience and vulnerability, and sometimes I think that's what's needed. And yeah. So 
Yeah. Do you have a fictional character that you most identify with? I would like Ripley from the Alien franchise. Not so much uh-huh. because, but there she is. You know, she's out in she's in outer space doing her job. She's also got an orange cat, like at least in the first Alien. <laughs> While she's trying to keep safe from like the xenomorph that's stalking the crew, it's I think she's yeah she's. If you think about it, she's just there, like working, and then this these things come up, and she's, yeah, she she just kind of she puts on her badass cap when she needs to, <laughs> yeah. Um, but then if you're like really thinking about the alien movies, it's it's really like the humans who are snooping around in alien territory. So really, it's the people who are the aliens, and I think I can relate to her in that sense as well. Interesting. What yeah. about? A fictional character that would be your dream partner? Huh. Dream partner. Okay, um, so this is gonna sound kind of weird, but maybe the rat from Ratatouille, but not as a rat, you know, like as a persona. Because he's someone who cooks well. He's had it kind of rough, but then he also likes the fine things in life. And he's the type of person. But, you know, I'm talking about the rat from Ratatouille <laughs> as a person. Yeah. So he'd, he'd take the reins if he needed to take the reins. But then he's not really all about credit. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do this for you. And don't worry about me. You know, I think, like, yeah, I think the rat from Ratatouille would make a good, but not as a rat. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd be surprised. <laughs> when I've asked yeah. people this question, I've gotten responses <laughs> that are like, Robin Hood, but the fox version. Like people read like the, the fox version of like Robin Hood, and it's like Simba from the Lion King. Then there's always a disclaimer, like, but not as animals, like more like this, like what they represent, like spiritually or something. Yeah. So okay, the yeah, so... that's a new one. I haven't heard of that, but no, that's true. He did what he did really well, but he was quite mm-hmm. content to kind of again he didn't have to take the credit it was just doing a good job in itself or reaching the pinnacle of kind of his craft was was like reward in itself which is kind of nice Um, yeah and all the happiness he brought with his food it's just so that would make a really good partner I think yeah yeah person <laughs> for occupational therapy because like, you said you, yeah. you make um or you you kind of teach people to do regular things like getting dressed like would cooking be one of them like how to operate a stove and so, or is that too advanced yes um actually yeah like I had a patient who was wheelchair bound and then I kind of taught her not how to cook but more of like safe kitchen management from um like at wheelchair level because you do have to maneuver things differently like everything yeah, you you kind of have to go into like a lateral workspace and not lift things, you, you know, like basically not try not to spill anything on yourself. But as far as cooking techniques, like that's beyond my scope <laughs> of expertise. <laughs> this is how you say. So yeah, I'd... exactly. That's like, oh, yeah. Or saute, uh, saute and make a souffle. Okay. <laughs> um, how would you like to be remembered, Irene? Hmm. Well, I want to be survived by my efforts in helping create a culture of compassion. So not necessarily because of like a particular work, but more of like as a body of work, you know, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So nice. you yeah, yeah I, I want to be survived by my efforts in helping create a culture of compassion through my body of work. 
do you have any recommended reading or viewing? Yeah, I would recommend, since I did mention Murakami earlier, like I would recommend reading William Faulkner's Barn Burning, then Murakami's Barn Burning, then watching the Korean movie Burning based on the Murakami short story. I think that's a kind of good little creative cognitive exercise there. And please read my articles, which have appeared in Rappler. So I would start with, if I were you, I would start with Paper Tiger, Real Tiger. And I would also rec shamelessly recommend my book, Tabon Girl. So if you're ready to start a conversation about gender roles with your kiddo, like regardless of whether you have a little girl, a little boy, or yeah, like um, someone non-binary, I think it's, it's one way to, to open that up. I can tell you what I'm currently reading. Like I usually alternate between two or three books at a time. So right now, since I'm interested in healthcare and migration, I'm reading Empire of Care, which is by Catherine Sinisa Choi. And this is about nursing migration and it's in the backdrop of imperialism. So far, it's been an interesting read. Um, I'm also reading Heather McGee's The Sum of Us, which is about the cost of racism in the United States. Yeah, on a related note, you actually wrote uh, in one of your articles that, you know, people were telling you a lot about, you know, how you're so lucky for this opportunity to like go work in the U.S. But you said that you did so with this realization that your work was being imported for the lack of a willing kind of um, American who could do the work. So they're quite like as it relates to Empire of Care and kind of some of the racist structures a bit interesting. But anyway, separate yeah. discussion, like people can read your articles. I'm just saying like it all connects and it's converse. I think it will start a lot of conversations. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think we, sh you know, going back to that, like it's always having migrated to the United States. Like I do to get told like, oh, I'm so lucky to be here. But no one ever frames it like, oh, they're lucky to have you. You know, it's like there's a healthcare shortage everywhere. And so in a sense, like if you think about it, people at the top of the empire, of course, they're lucky to have people from the imperial margins come in and do work that's really necessary. But it's not really, no one really frames it that way. You know, like um, we're so lucky to have the best from, and that's the other thing too. A lot of people who migrate were usually like in the top of our fields. And that's not that's not emphasized enough, I think. And it comes at the cost of us leaving our home countries. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we could have a whole separate discussion, but I think in places like Hong Kong, not even for healthcare workers, this is just basic, mm -hmm. let's say domestic helpers and other jobs that, again, society doesn't. I mean, I think healthcare workers are looked at as heroes, but there are some professions like, you know, again, that require a lot of migrant labor, like say, uh, people working in the docks or the cruise ships or domestic mm -hmm. helpers that are not as appreciated. But when um, borders closed, like I know in places like Singapore and Hong Kong, they were kind of, I saw some things in the headline, like we need to reopen the borders so that we can like the workers, migrant workers can come back in. And it was for professions for, you know, things like domestic helpers and whatnot that again, were not so appreciated, but when they're not there, that's, I guess, when people start to notice like mm -hmm. how lucky they are that people from other countries are willing to go there and do those jobs that not everyone wants to do and um and, and again that's in a 
totally different like sphere of of work, right? And but and you're right, the migrants that are going to America to do jobs, you know, like occupational therapy, are like yourselves, you know, the top of their fields. They were previously professors. They had like master's degrees. I've even met nurses who were like doctors in their home countries, and you know, reskill mm-hmm. when when they had to meet like the labor demand in, in another place and. Yeah, you're you're right. The discussion doesn't really get framed as the, the host country is lucky to to have them, and I think that's a perspective that should be considered and that should change, uh, and hopefully will as a result of everything you're writing, because you're giving a real voice again to the profession, but also the experience of migrant workers. So yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So if they eventually, you know, make a movie about all your experiences, who would you like to play you? Yikes! So <laughs> I. I... I have no idea like who's out there right now. Um, I mean, I think like of the Filipino actresses that I really like, it's, um, I like Alessandra De Rossi. We don't look alike at all, but I think she's a great actress. So yeah, maybe her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but we don't, you know, like in terms of likeness, I don't, I don't see it, but or maybe she could choose someone. She could direct. I think she's directing now, right? Uh, so, so yeah, maybe choose someone. <laughs> interesting. Speaking of yeah, yeah. Do you have any hidden talents or untapped potential that you have not unleashed into the world yet? <laughs> untapped potential. Um, I bet if I practice juggling, like literal juggling, not just schedule management, I'd be decent at it. So, and as far as hidden talents, I've been pretty conscious about sharing the talents I have. So if it's a hidden talent, it's still hidden. It's <laughs> hidden for a reason. It. I like that. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Maybe, it's, maybe it doesn't even exist. Who knows? Uh-huh. Yeah. I look so, at it as like archaeological excavation. Like there. Unearth- <laughs> unearthing all of these gifts that you have maybe i don't know <laughs> i'm just trying to tie it back to the theme of your writing <laughs> thank you yeah yeah I appreciate that yeah yeah no this has given me a lot to think about and also i really mm-hmm. liked what you said about you know the expectations of you know or the questions about self-promotion and whatnot and i don't think you're shameless in your promotion at all i think you're very conscious as far as highlighting your work and it doesn't come across as boastful or you know extra in, in any way and and if some creators want to do that that's fine that's their prerogative but just as far as what you're putting out into the world I, I just want to let you know I think it comes across as very like well-intentioned and authentic and yeah and that's something that we need now more than ever so please keep putting your voice out there and um, I think your clients and the country that you live in right now is lucky to have you <laughs> so <laughs> they're you. all lucky to have you so if yeah, if, if you don't hear it enough, um, I wanted to send that <laughs> your way. Um, thank you so much for spending time to talk to us across, you know, different time zones and, you know, rescheduling. And, you know, we talked about juggling. So you were very uh, understanding with my, my juggling also. So thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I wish you the best in all that you do. And um, I hope to reconnect in the future when, you know, we can maybe do part two of this when you have more writing out there and when you're, when you've, uh, I don't know if you've like other things you want to share about your work, but uh, I would love to like pick up and do part two, like post pandemic edition. Totally. Yeah. Exciting. Okay. Thanks, Irene. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you.
Bye. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, and share with a friend so that others can find the pod as well. Do check out at occupationalhazards.podcast on Instagram, where we have more updates from our guests and some listener feedback. Slide into our DMs. We'd love to hear from you. Catch you next episode.